I began my weekly check-in with Yaakov Katz earlier today, focused on four key issues that dominated in Israel last week. But as usual, as soon as we began our discussion, it took on a life of its own. So we covered three of the four. Hostages, the International Court of Justice hearing regarding South Africa's charge that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinian people. And lastly, we get into the baffling conduct of the government led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, which seems to be ignoring dire warnings from the Shin Bet Security Service of an imminent breakout of violence in the West Bank. Just another week in the Middle East. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel and currently living in the awesome state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us. Good morning, Yaakov, on this Sunday, January 14th. How are you? All considered 100 days into this war, tough, but personally okay. Yeah, it is 100 days. And as we speak, between 11 a.m. and I think it's 12.30 p.m. in Israel, most businesses are shutting down and everyone is focusing on this terribly tragic moment for the country and especially for the families and absolutely, ultimately, for the hostages. It's a tough moment, 100%. I think you said it very correctly that there's 100 days of war. There's 100 days of this fighting that's been going on, but there's also 100 days of these people who are being held in some dark hole somewhere in the Gaza Strip. And we don't know what's happening to them. And we know that every moment that passes is a moment of where their lives are in danger. And it just rips our heart out. And it's just, it pierces every time you think about it. It's so painful. Forget about for you or I, but for the families and for the people who have loved ones there, it's horrifying. It's just really horrifying. When I think about and I feel, and we all do every day, exactly what you just talked about, forget about us. Exactly. And I know how it's gutting me personally. But the families and the hostages, we can't imagine. On the topic of the hostages, which is uppermost in our minds every day, but in particular today, there was last week this extraordinary clip of a woman named Reuma Kedem, an elderly woman who lives on a kibbutz called En Hashlosha in that Gaza area, which I think was relatively untouched. But she suffered indescribable personal loss. She basically lost her whole family who lived at kibbutz near Oz. And there was an encounter last week, totally by coincidence, when Minister of Defense Yov Gallant was touring in the area a bit and he was at near Oz and she happened to go back to near Oz to try to salvage some things from the ruins of her family's home. And they had this exchange. So for our listeners, I actually wrote about it and dropped the piece yesterday on Saturday. And I included the video clip of the conversation between Yoav Gallant and Ruma Kedem. And it's, you really should read it and watch it because it's one of the most moving clips yeah. and exchanges I've ever seen. And I felt, Yaakov, that Reuma Kedem absolutely captured, metaphorically, literally, by her sounds, by her lack of sound, by her Job-like anguish, everything that is going on in this country domestically, and how she upbraided the minister for saying, be silent, be quiet, fake the unity thing. How did you interpret that exchange? I think you described it accurately. It, it was just so painful, and it was a mother and grandmother's anguish and pain 
of she lost her daughter and her daughter's husband and their children were murdered on that day of October 7th. And, you know, she was just calling out with crying out to the defense minister she happened to bump into as he was touring the south of Israel and along the Gaza border. I would say that to Yoav Gallen's credit, he just stood there and took it, right? There was nothing that he could really say that would ease any of the pain. And he just listened. And, and you saw the tense moment between the two of them. You know, for a lot of us who have not moved on from October 7th, but are now focused, let's say, more on the war and the fighting and the daily casualty toll that unfortunately continues to climb of the Israeli soldiers and the fate of the hostages who are still being held there and whether Israel's meeting its objectives of degrading Hamas and weakening it and winning this war or not. For many people, life just stopped. It froze in time on October 7th. And I think Ruama Kedem made that very clear that, that this was a tragedy of biblical proportions for Israel and for so many people. And we can never forget that. And it just, you know, we look around what's happening, Vivian. I know we're going to talk maybe a bit about what's happening at The Hague, but the absurdity of how the world accuses us of genocide, us. We are the ones who were the victims of an attempted genocide on October 7th. They wanted, they came in to just murder for the purpose of murdering and to kill for the purpose of killing. And we're the ones who are being brought before the International Court of Justice. We, the ones who have suffered this amazing, unimaginable pain and grief and tragedy, it just hurts on so many levels. And I think that, you know, we all have to remember that that what happened on that day is not yet beyond us at all. I happen to think, and as I wrote in the piece yesterday, this is going to stand as one of the most horrific tragedies in Jewish history, period. It's right up there with the big ones. Yes, it is. In my view. And I found, particularly when she said to him repeatedly, where were you? Yeah. Where were you? You know, every in time- lot on holiday, she remember what she said? Yeah. In a lot. People out there listening, you really need, if you want to understand what's happening in Israel domestically on the ground and the mood of the nation, I urge you to watch that. But now we're going to do The Hague. And yes, the world is piling on and it's surreal because it's a complete inversion of fact, reality, morality. You know, we all know that Hamas has in its charter its stated goal to annihilate Israel, to kill Jews everywhere. So the ICJ, we have, I'm sure you watched uh, all, if not part of the opening arguments by both South Africa and Israel. I did. I thought the Israeli legal team did a superb job. And in fact, State of Tel Aviv will be speaking with one of the senior legal advisors who was in the room, in the courtroom this week to talk about things in greater depth. But you're going to do the big picture for us, Yaakov, about this unseemly international pylon led by South Africa, which is funded by, I give everybody out there one guess. How do you see it? What's going on there? What's going to happen? I think that the average Israeli looks at what's happening at the ICJ and just doesn't understand how this happened, right? How is it that the world can be so morally corrupt and just perverted in the way that they view what happened? You know, according to Jewish tradition, you know this, that we are the chosen people, but chosen for how much Tsaris can and how much can we be chosen for the world to just completely corrupt everything that's going on? I'll say that there's, you know, there's a couple of ways to look at what's happening. On the one hand, there's obviously this moral perversion that's happening there, and I hope that we do win. 
but it's all, the cards are stacked up against us. And the reason is because the world is against us. And I think that this is just another reminder that is in fact the reality. The second question that I think a lot of people have is, why are we even there? Because of that being the starting point, why even bother? And I think that Israel made the right decision actually going to The Hague because whether they draw their decision at the end that we are committing acts of genocide according to South Africa's charge, or whether we don't, the fact is that the world and most of the people around the world will see that decision come down and they won't know the nuances and understand that there's a prejudice and a bias against Israel. So you have to fight back and you have to fight in this war on so many different fronts. It's on the battlefield in Gaza. It's in the home front where those rockets still are being fired, but it's also on the battlefield of public diplomacy in places like The Hague. There's lawfare, There's it's whether it's on the international media, it's everywhere you have to fight. And that's important. And then the third part of it is, of course, is the participation of Aaron Barak, the former president of the Supreme Court, who was vilified for so long. And in the eight, nine months that led up to October 7th with the government's judicial reform, and he was kind of painted or portrayed as the great Satan to some extent of what right. was happening here in the battle between the judiciary and the government. And now he's there on the judge panel as a judge on the panel to defend Israel. We it, It's just another perfect example, Vivian, of how we have to put aside this nonsense and realize that we are not in a place that we can play with our fate. And I think that is yeah. the real lesson that we should be taking away from all of this. I think, I, you know, there, there's been a lot of uh, heavy weather made of the fact that we have quite a number of ministers in this current government and side players, B players, who have made noxious, really extreme, stupid comments that were, of course, that there was genocidal intent in the Gaza incursion on the part of Israel. I'm of the view that however many stupid things Minister Ben Gvir may say, or Betzalel Smotrich, or Bibi, or any of them, they stand as kind of, you know, peripheral evidence, but they certainly do not demonstrate genocidal intent. And that came out in the arguments, but they're damaging. And these are from our top officials right. saying these really dumb things. As one friend wrote to me the other day, we're our own worst enemies after Hamas. I, I can't agree with you more, but I think what we really have a ex better example of is just the lack of discipline, the lack of messaging, the fact that everybody says whatever they want. But the comments that were pulled out by South Africa, they included the more right-wing and extremist elements of the government. But also you had Isaac Herzog, right? The president, who's a great statesman and a <clears throat> unifier, whose quotes were also used. Listen, you want to find evidence and try to manipulate it and show that Israel had these intentions. Here's the simple one that I always look at. When they came into our towns on October 7th, no one gave us notice. No one dropped leaflets. No one made any phone calls. No one told us that they're coming to murder and kidnap us. And they just did it. Before we went in on the ground in northern Gaza or anywhere in Gaza, how many leaflets did we drop? How many phone calls did we make? How many times did we put on TV and send out email blasts and all over social media, the map of where we're going to be operating. Who does that when they're going after an enemy? We do. And we are being accused of genocide. And we waited three weeks before even going in on the ground, which as Correct. Dr. Galit Rajwan pointed out in her submissions brilliantly, I thought, we gave them time to reorganize, regroup, move hostages, kind of prepared to fight us. Nobody does that. That's not genocidal intent. I keep on thinking about this, and I say it all the time. After 9-11 and the Al-Qaeda attacks, and Osama bin Laden was in Bora Bora, right, in those mountains or caves, whatever it was called, on the Afghani-Pakistani border. Can you imagine that America, before bombing those caves, would have dropped leaflets and said, hey, listen, we're coming for you in these caves? No, 
No one, when they're fighting, does things like this. The only one that does is Israel. And it's infuriating, and it shows us something so simple. And you know what that is, Vivian? That Jewish blood is cheap. That's what it shows for the world, unfortunately. I have something maybe even more important to point out, that there's no way Osama bin Laden was in Bora Bora, because that's a, you know, South Seas resort, right? Whatever, so Tora Tora, whatever, <laughs> whatever those places, whatever that mountain place no, was. No, I, sorry, I, I just, we needed to, you know, moment of levity there. Yeah. And a not light, not light time in our lives. Absolutely. Uh, let's hope that the panel of judges, I think it's 17 or 18, it's a huge panel, largest ever, that there is some true legal jurisprudential minds on that panel of judges and not just political activists. And I also want to point out before we move on from the Court of International Court of Justice that Germany came out stridently, yes. boldly, unequivocally in Israel's favor and will be seeking standing status before the court, meaning that if the court says, yeah, we think that there's enough evidence to have a full hearing on genocidal intent, we're going to find that out this week if the court feels that way. And if they do, and everyone expects that they will, that we're going to have some good allies and diplomatic support and legal support behind us, Germany just being one. There are a number of countries, and I do expect that there will be more that line up seeking standing. Let's hope. Uh, and that's profound, and we'll talk about that some other time. Lastly, we're talking about maybe borderline irresponsible comments made by senior government ministers and others that have been, of course, deployed against us at the court. But there's something much more serious going on which is the Shin Bet. Shabak apparently has been warning Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu repeatedly and his cabinet, the Palestinian Authority is being cash-starved and there are significant security implications for Israel with cash-starving them and their security forces. But that Netanyahu has been warned repeatedly that there is a very strong likelihood of an imminent outbreak of extreme violence in the West Bank. And even Secretary Blinken has stepped into this sort of domestic issue and said, Bibi, give them the money now. Explain to our listeners, Yaakov, what's really going on here and why Bibi seems to be stuck and refusing to manage this crisis. It's a combination of, I think, three different parts. The first is anything that the intelligence agencies and the defense establishment says today is looked at a little differently than it was up until October 7th. And that is because of the complete failure and breakdown. You mentioned the head of the Shabak, the head of the Shin Bet. He's also rumored to have said that he plans to step down because of the failure at the end of this war. So there's a natural suspicion now within government of anything that these intelligence agencies or military assessors have to say. That's one. Two, there is the political problem that Netanyahu finds himself in, which is if anything that he will to do today to build up and seem to bolster the Palestinian Authority is going to be met by fierce resistance within his very right-wing coalition. And let's not forget that we know that Netanyahu has always pretty much put his political survival at the top of his priorities. And therefore, even if it's the right move to give the Palestinian Authority this money because they needed to survive and they needed to keep things under a lid so there won't be this outbreak, let's say, in the West Bank, then he will be in a tough place. What to do is do the right thing to prevent that violence or do the right thing to keep his coalition. And the third part ties into the question of what happens after this war. And we still don't have an articulated, outlined 
Israeli policy of what Israel wants to see happen. We still don't know what it is. Now, everyone who who thinks about it really can't really come up with an alternative to some role that the Palestinian Authority is going to play in the aftermath in the Gaza Strip. But Netanyahu, again, because of number two, because of the politics, can't say that. So the Americans are pushing him. They want to see the Palestinian Authority revitalized, reformed, rebuilt, whatever you want to call it. And that requires getting some of this money. But Netanyahu, because of his of the political situation, can't take steps in that direction. So we're stuck in a, in a difficult place right now, which doesn't allow us, because of the politics, to really outline what we want to see happen and what role the Palestinian Authority is going to play there. I would hope that it would. And we have the battle in Gaza and we have the tense situation on the north with Lebanon and who knows where that's going to go. And the West Bank, there was a terrorist infiltration and uh, settlement near Hebron on Friday night. You know, it, things are not quiet. We, we are facing already three or four fronts, you know, the Houthis as well. I mean, it's just everywhere you look, there is danger and Israel needs to stand strong, but also we need to come up with policies for what we want to see happen because military action is only a means for a political resolution. Let's not forget that. Very well put. I want to leave on a not happy note because it's hard to find true happy, but on a more optimistic note that also enrages me, I have to say, but the Qataris finally got Hamas to agree to allow medication to enter the Gaza Strip and to be delivered to the hostages who've been in there for 100 days. Why this wasn't done from day one, we'll put that aside. The medication is going in today. That's a good thing. Do you think it'll actually get to the hostages? I have no idea. I hope so. We know. You listen to the hostages who have come back and the, the horrific depiction and description of what they went through and what the other people are going through and what situation, what the status and the deterioration of what they're facing. They need this medicine. They need to come home. And that's the bottom line. And we need to find a way to make that happen. That has to be one of the ultimate objectives here. We have to take down Hamas 100%, but we need to get these people home. They were in their homes on October 7th, and they were taken because this government and this IDF and this Shabak failed. We have a moral responsibility to bring everybody back, whoever is still alive and whoever we can get. We have to bring them back home and we can't take our eyes off that ball. That has to be the goal here. I agree. And I'm going to close out with this. I had a very different reaction to watching uh, Minister of Defense Yoav Galant when he was speaking to Ruma Kedem. And she said, where were you? What have you been doing? What are you doing? Where were you? And he stood there silently and you said, you know, respectful. He was listening, and when he, she prodded him, he said, I'm just listening. And I thought, no, not good enough after 100 days. Not good enough. You stood there like an automaton. You looked blank. You were absolutely expressionless. But no, after 100 days, you owe us more. And you owe those hostages and everyone more than to stand there and say nothing. Off we go. It's the 100th day. Tel Aviv, where I live, is after 1230 today going to be nonstop commemoration, activism. Everywhere you go, there's something going on to advocate for the hostages. What's going on in Jerusalem? Are you going to be doing anything today? There's a couple of rallies that are taking place here. And I think everyone is just marking this moment in time. We can't forget. We can never forget what happened, but we also can't forget the people who are still there languishing. We have to get them back home. Amen. Yaakov, as always, it's been a slice. 
And I love talking to you about all these issues. I look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Have a good week. Thank you. You too. It's a nonstop whirlwind here, and Yaakov and I just scratched the surface, barely. We didn't even touch one of the most dramatic developments in the region this past week, which saw a coalition of military interests led by the United States straight back at the increasingly aggressive Houthis in Yemen. They've been attacking commercial ships for weeks now, and every so often sending missile barrages at Israel and other targets in the region. The missiles have been intercepted, but increasing Houthi belligerence does not bode well. The Houthis are, of course, an Iranian proxy. The possibility of all of this organized chaos leading to a wider regional conflict, and perhaps even broader, is very real. Thanks for listening. It's as wintry a day as we get in Tel Aviv. Intermittent rain showers and a frigid 17 degrees Celsius, or 61 Fahrenheit, which has most Israelis bundled up in winter jackets and scarves. For real. From yesterday afternoon, all night Saturday night, and throughout the day today, Tel Aviv has been marking 100 days of hostage captivity with constant commemorations. Medicine, hopefully, will reach the hostages today as well. They range in age from one year to 85. The conditions in which they are held are worse than primitive. We know that the psychological, physical, and sexual abuse are constant and sadistic. We must bring them home now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment, rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel. It is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. <laughs>